So let's, let me pray so I begin my message. Lord, I pray right now, God, that You would, would help us to see not just the, the reality in Your Word, the truth that we celebrate here at Christmas. That God has come down to man, has come to dwell with us, and yet we hated Him. And we have hated You in our rebellion. You crucified this baby become a man. And we put Him to death. And yet, God, by Your power, Jesus raised from the dead, God, thereby showing His power over sin, over death, God, that we who believe might enjoy Your glories forever and ever. So Lord, I pray the Gospel here would be clear this morning as we look to these things we think about this Christmas season, reflect upon it. God, stir our hearts and affections towards You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Christmas season, and uh, during Christmas season, many different attitudes and emotions and experiences surround the Christmas season. One that comes to my mind is the word Mary. Merriment. Happiness. Even as the children saying, we wish you a Merry Christmas. I think this is the only time that that word is ever used, right? Merry, happy, jolly. Tis the season to be jolly. La 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 la. Right. And in every way, this is right because Christmas is a time of happiness, a time of, of parties, it's a time of vacation, time for family and friends, and for Christians and believers in Christ. It is especially a time of happiness as we reflect upon, think about the coming of our Savior. Uh, another attitude, mindset that comes to mind is is that of giving. If there's anything that Christmas is known for, it's known for gifts. I'm not sure how many times I've heard this phrase asking me, well, are you ready for Christmas? And when someone asks you, are you ready for Christmas, what, what do they really mean? They, they really mean, have you purchased all of your gifts that you're going to give to people? And in fact, this Christmas season, we do have a gift to give all of you. There's a, someone in the congregation who donated and purchased enough books, a gospel primer, for all of us, it'll be there on the back table. Uh, there's a box right here. Hannah's going to take that at the end of the service. It's a, just a gift to you and uh, really helps um, just focus our life upon Christ and all He has done for us in the Gospel. I trust that you will read this and cherish it. I, I've read this a couple years ago. found an encouragement to my, my soul. And so it's a, it's a gift to all of you. Um, but that's a gift. It's appropriate at Christmas time to give those sort of things. Children know what gifts are because they're on the receiving end. And I know that my children were counting down the days until Christmas and they are very aware of what took place on Christmas Eve leading to Christmas when there would be presents for them to unwrap, which they loved. Christmas, merriment, gift giving. I think also around Christmas time there's busyness, there's stress. It's incredible busy at the time time of the year with parties to attend, events to prepare for, and the purchasing of these gifts just leads to craziness many times. Just try going shopping in Christmas season. I know that many of us experienced that these last couple weeks. People get stressed with business, with Christmas. The Christmas cards that need to go out. They, they think about their upcoming family, family gatherings and some are, some are bad and it's stressful and they just don't even want to think about it. Another attitude, memories. 
Christmas is a time for memories. You can remember back to Christmases of old. Maybe you remember your favorite Christmas present. Maybe you remember a, a time when you were a child and you had some kind of experience. Maybe you remember a final Christmas with a loved one. Maybe some tradition that you develop with these memories. Maybe you look upon Christmas spent in the hospital and you tell that story or, or Christmas caught in a snowstorm or, or Christmas that you spent on a beachside someplace. Christmas is a time of, of memories and even nostalgia. Some of these things we sing, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And it stirs like our emotions. And then you have to ask, well, I don't, I've never had a chestnut roasting on an open fire. How is that that that... But it just, the sentimentality and emotions comes in. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. I don't even know what a Yuletide carol is. But somehow it's just this memory, nostalgia surrounding Christmas. Another attitude is, is joy. One of the most famous Christmas hymns is, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Joy is the message the angels brought to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for you and for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But amidst all these attitudes of, of Christmas, whether they be spiritual emotions or whether they be tradition, whether it's gift giving or whatever it is, I think there's one attitude that's often lost during the Christmas season and it's the attitude of humility. There are parties <clears throat> during the Christmas season. There's joy, there's gift givings, there's emotions, but of all of that, there should be Humility. My message to you this morning is entitled, Christmas Should Humble You. Christmas Should Humble You. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. So we've been going through the, the book of Philippians verse by verse. We have come providentially today to Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. These verses cover the great reality of what took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born of a virgin. God came in the flesh. The divine took on human form. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. He came to save His people from their sins. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas season. God coming in the flesh to save us from our sins. And this text here, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which speaks about the Incarnation, speaks about Christmas, calls us to one application. The application is humility. Let's read it there. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The exhortation to us this morning comes in verse 5. The humiliation we see in Jesus comes in verses 6 through 8. In fact, that's my, my outline this morning. It's exhortation, verse 5. Humiliation, verses 6 through 8. Look, look there at verse 5. It really is a transition verse. It's a call to humility. It's difficult to say, does verse 5 go with what precedes it? 
Or does verse 5 go with what follows it? When he says, have this attitude, I think he's referring to verses 1 through 4, in which Paul is calling for an attitude of humility among the body. If therefore, verse 1, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being unified, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And how will unity be cultivated within the body? Only with humility. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Right? Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And Paul is saying, have that attitude among yourselves. Have that attitude of humility that, that, that's not looking to yourself. That's pride. But have the attitude that looks towards others, looks towards their interests. That's what verse 5 is speaking about. So, in some regards, it goes with verses 1 through 4. And yet, in some regards, it goes verses 6 through 8. Because he says, have this attitude, right, of humility. And by the way, this attitude also was in Christ Jesus. Verses 6 through 8. And they describe the humility of Christ when He came from heaven to earth. When He came to earth as a servant and died on the cross for our sins. As that praise chorus says, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. And that's where the section we'll deal with next week, verses 9 through 11. Lifting your name on high, worshiping you comes. But the humiliation comes in verses 6 through 8. Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see the exhortation, verse 5, the humiliation, verses 6 through 8, which describe Christmas. And this morning, as we work through our text, I'm, I'm just going to interweave these points. <clears throat> We're going to primarily look at my second point, humiliation of Jesus, and after each verse, just kind of bring us back to the exhortation. Do, is your humility like this? Is your humility like this? Is your humility like this? So let's look at the humiliation. Now, when I say humiliation, I don't mean that Jesus was humiliated. Verses 6 through 8 aren't speaking about how others made fun of Jesus, though they did as he hung on the cross, right? They said, He saved others, let him save himself. Let this Christ now come down from the cross so we may see and believe. But that's not what these verses are talking about. These verses are talking about what took place when Jesus came to earth, from heaven to earth, and that was a humbling experience. In other words, when Jesus came to earth, He was made low. He was not forced to humiliation in any way. He was a willing subject. In fact, that's precisely the point of verse 6. He was a willing subject. He had a humble heart. That's what I'm calling verse 6. A humble heart. Look at there. Who, although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. These verses take us back into heaven before Jesus came into the flesh. It speaks about the heart of Jesus. The attitude that Jesus had. First of all, it affirms that He had full deity. He existed in the form of God. That is, He was God. So, Scripture affirms elsewhere, Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1, 15. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's Christmas, right? God coming into the flesh. That's what Emmanuel means. In Matthew 1, verse 23, quoting Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be a child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus. And... His name will be Emmanuel. Rather, that means God with us. Jesus' name is Emmanuel. Im, with, Anu, us, El, God, with us, God. And in verse 6 here we see that Jesus, who was God, who is God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. That is, that Jesus didn't see His his full equality with God, something he necessarily had to hold on to. Rather, he was willing to, to let it go. That's what it means. That he, he had it and he let it go. Before the incarnation, Jesus was with God, reigning with Him in all of His glory. In high priestly prayer, Jesus mentioned His glory. Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus, even professing, says, I was with you in all my glory. God says in Isaiah, my glory I will give to no other. That's that's the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus had full glory of God because He was God. But Jesus didn't think His glory anything to be tenaciously held on to. Rather, He He willingly laid it aside. The best I compare this would be like a, a physician or a professor. Picture someone who has had many, many, many years of schooling, has earned an MD or has earned a PhD. They've earned and deserved the name doctor. And yet, the doctor who says, I'm willing to be called Bill or John or Pete or Mary, demonstrates what Jesus had. Though he, though he had full glory with God, he let it go. And these doctors who don't require other people to to call me Dr. Johnson or Dr. Franklin or Dr. Jones, they don't regard their their status as something they need to hold on to. Rather, they're willing to let it go. And when a physician or a PhD is called Pete or John or Mary, they don't give up their doctor's status. They're still doctors. But what do they do? They, They willingly give up the honor due them because of their position. And similarly, when Jesus came into the flesh, He did the same thing. In no way did He give up being God. He was still God in the flesh, but He willingly gave up the honor that was due God, due Him, and status in heaven. He willingly gave up His glory. I think that's what verse 6 is speaking about. Although He exists in the form of God, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And thereby, Jesus shows the type of God that we worship. We worship a God with a humble heart. See, Jesus wasn't above us in a sense that He would never come to be among us. Rather, Jesus was willing to come and to be among us. The Apostle John speaks in 1 John chapter 1 about seeing Jesus with our eyes and and handling Him with our hands, touching Him and, and hearing Jesus with our ears because Jesus came to be with us and among us. See, our God is not like Allah, the Muslims worship. 
who reigns and rules from heaven with an iron fist, who would never stoop to the indignity of humanity. He would never condescend to anything that would dishonor him in any way. That's why, by the way, Muslims hold high the honor of their God Allah, who is not the true God. And those who, who dishonor Allah stir up the greatest of emotions in their followers because that's all that, that Allah is about. It is about just great honor. And so that's why Muslims burn church buildings. That's why Muslims kill infidels because Christians dishonor Allah. That's the type of God they have. But our God is not like that. Our God is willing to let go of His glory. He's willing to come be with us. He's willing to dwell with us. He's willing to be beaten and scourged and set upon a cross for us. And we, by the way, then are called to walk in His paths. Our leader lived a life of suffering and hardship for the sake of righteousness, and so are we. We are to live that life. That's why Christians will willingly endure the scoffing of others. That's why Christians should rejoice when suffering for Christ. Jesus said, Blessed are you when you've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because Jesus was persecuted in that way and we just follow in His steps. As we're persecuted, we identify ourselves as one of His. That's why when the apostles were flogged, they went on the way in the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Because Jesus suffered shame, so also ought we. And I think that's a bit what verse 6 is is talking about, is the, the, the shame that Jesus took on, the humanity. He didn't hold up the status. Right? When Jesus walked among us, few understood Him. Think about how the Pharisees accused Jesus of being born of fornication. John chapter 8, verse 41. The Jews accused Jesus of being a Samaritan, a half-breed. The, the, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being one who had a demon. And when Jesus claimed divinity... The Jews picked up stones to stone Him. That Such was His humiliation. Being misunderstood. Coming down. Coming low to be with the lowly. Setting aside His honor. And so, now verse 5, the exhortation that comes to all of you. Is this your attitude? Do you have the attitude of Jesus? The, the command in verse 5 couldn't be more clear. Have this attitude... In yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. How, what kind of attitude Christ Jesus have? Well, He was fully God in glory and, and came to dwell with the lowly. Fully God in glory and came and be misunderstood. Fully God in glory set aside His, His honor. Are you willing to spend time with the lowly? Are you willing to be misunderstood? Are you willing to, to set aside your honor for the sake of others? Let's go beyond this. Not just are you willing to do that. Have you dwelt with the lowly? Are you dwelling with the lowly? Are there people in your life you can say, you know what? Here's a lowly person. I'm dwelling with that person. Or can you say this? You say, um, in this instance, I've set aside my honor for the sake. Or have you been willingly misunderstood like Jesus was and didn't consider it your honor to justify yourself, defend yourself, and put things right? 
Are there instances in your life, not just are you willing, are there instances in your life you can think of that? Those are manifestations of humility. Those are manifestations of what took place with Jesus. You know, Jesus said one time when being invited to a big luncheon, He said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return that you will receive your payment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you and you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Now, that's, that's not to say you ought not to invite your friends to dinner at your place. One of the things, Yvonne, I love, we love having you all over for dinner at our place. And, I, and I'm not saying that you all are the lame and the blind and the poor and the crippled. Okay, I'm not saying that. You should do that. But have you ever invited the lame and the blind, the poor and the crippled to your home? Have you ever invited maybe those who could never ever repay you? Might be a good question for you. That's what Jesus calls it. That's what Jesus did, right? He came to us. We can never repay Him for what He did. He invites us to His wedding feast. Read about it in Revelation 19. Paul calls us to do the same. Right? We're, we're not called to imitate Jesus in attitude. We're called to demonstrate it in action like Jesus did. Have you demonstrated that? That's the message of the Incarnation. That's the message of Christmas. Is Jesus was willing to lay aside His glory to come and dwell with us and we should do the same. Christmas should humble you. Christmas should humble me. Let's go on to verse 7. Jesus not only had a humble heart, willing in time past to say, yes, I will come and be a man, but... In present time, when He lived, He lived a humble life. He had a humble heart. Verse 7, He had a humble life. Jesus emptied Himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. When Jesus came to earth, He came as a servant. Literally more accurately, taking the form of a slave. That's what a bond servant is. One who is tied with His Master forever. Jesus came to be a slave among us. Demonstrates His humility. Now, His coming, that, that is not what we would have expected. Matthew Henry said it well. One would think that the Lord Jesus, if He would be a man, should have been a prince, appeared in splendor. But quite the contrary. He took upon Him the form of a servant. Isn't that what Jesus did? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did. The King became a servant. The, the, the King of Heaven became a servant of men. It's not how it is with kings. They rule and reign in the palaces. They have servants to meet to their every need. They throw parties like King Ahasuerus did in Esther's day. Their word becomes law of the land like Nebuchadnezzar or King Darius or King Cyrus did in their days. But Jesus didn't rule and reign in any of these days. He, he didn't in any of these ways. He, he didn't have a palace to sit in. Instead, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't come as a king. He came as a servant. He, he had no servants. He owned little by way of possessions. His words didn't become the law of the land. When Jesus stood before Pilate, you can read about it in John chapter 18, Pilate could hardly believe he was a king. In fact, he kind of mocks him and he says, Are you king of the Jews? And kind of went through and Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate must have been like, what are you talking about? 
And then I think he mocked the Jews when he brought Jesus before the Jews. He said, behold, the king of the Jews, what shall I do with him? Totally misunderstood that because that's that's not what we think about a king. He didn't look like a king, didn't act like a king. He acted like a servant. On Christmas Eve, I made the point that the birth of Jesus began the trajectory of the life of Jesus. Meaning that the manner of His birth, coming in a lowly manger to lowly parents in a lowly city, continued with His life that He lived a a lowly, humble life. Jesus wasn't one to bring great fanfare to Himself. The first 30 years of His life, we hardly know of anything that took place save but the circumstance surrounding His birth and maybe something when He was 12 years old. And uh, beyond that, we, we don't know hardly anything. It's because Jesus... Just lived a humble, obedient, submissive, servant life. When the time came to call His disciples, He called lowly fishermen like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Or He called sinners and tax, like a tax collector like Matthew. And when He trained His disciples, He trained them by example. Showed them how to preach. Demonstrating compassion. Modeling service. You remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed, how He got up from supper, laid aside His garments, taking a towel, He girded Himself, they poured water in the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and wiped them with a the towel which he was girded. The lowest of tasks he was willing to do. The king of the universe washing the, the feet of sinful, stubborn, unbelieving disciples. Well, what Jesus did that night was a microcosm of his whole life. When Jesus came to earth, Christmas we celebrate, he came in humility. And when he lived, he lived in humility as well. And I think in some way that's the key to the, the first phrase of verse 7, which has mystified theologians for years. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? The NIV is literal at this point. It reads, Jesus made himself nothing. In fact, that's what the verb means. Kanao. Kanos means vain. Kanao. To, to make vain or to make empty or to make of no effect. Now, some theologians have tried to describe what took place here as the giving up of His divine attributes to live here on earth. In other words, these theologians say to become a man, Jesus had to give up being God. This is called the kenosis theory from kenao, from kenos, from being vain. They call it the emptying theory. Well, we ought to reject that view because it's nowhere taught in Scripture that Jesus ever gave up His deity. It's impossible for God to give up His deity. John Owen said it well. He who is God can no more be not God than he who is not God can be God. Got it? He who is God can no more be not God than he who is not God can be God. Jesus could not be God just as easily as you all can become God. It's impossible. The point. While walking upon the earth, Jesus was fully God, capable of miracles, knowing what only God can know, doing what only God could do. But when Jesus took on humanity, there are some limitations of being human. Limitations of what he was. He felt weakness, he felt hunger, he felt thirst because of the humanity that he took on. In fact, many have, have spoken about this, about uh, regarding the, the emptiness of God, what it means to empty. Well, well he. he he, he, he emptied by taking on. So, addition by subtraction. Subtraction by addition, right? He, he, he took on flesh. In fact, that's even what it says, right? Taking the form 
of a bondservant. Lambano. He received the form of a bondservant. So, taking on more of what he had and thereby emptying the deity. But I just say, Jesus is fully God, fully man. How it works together is a mystery. You can try to figure that out. But, but I think that that's what this means to empty Himself. It just means the incarnation. In fact, I think when you look at verse 7, how it is He emptied Himself, the next phrase describes it. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. You can easily read that. Jesus emptied Himself by taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. And the very fact that Jesus came as a bondservant shows what it means that He emptied Himself. He gave up His status of glory in heaven to live as a servant on earth. He gave up His privileges of reigning in heaven that He might be a servant on earth. Jesus gave up His position in heaven to live as a man on the earth. I think that describes what it is. And let me just say also, the distance between the throne room of God in heaven and the manger in Bethlehem is an infinite distance. In our our home in recent days, something came up. I forget what it was, Hannah, but we've been talking about Google recently. Do you guys know how how Google is spelled? How do you spell it, Ethan? Yeah, that's what everyone thinks, right? So that's the the search engine. That's not how it's spelled. Google. G-O-O-G-E-L. A Google. And do you know what a Google is? Right? What is a Google, Stephanie? That's right. A one with a hundred zeros. The distance between the throne of God and heaven and the manger is infinite. It's bigger than a Google. And a Googleplex is what, Stephanie? A one with a Google zeros. She has learned her math lesson well. That's meaning that from the glory of God to the humility of a stable is, is infinite. We read in Isaiah 40, verse 7, that all the nations before God are nothing before Him. In fact, Isaiah says they're regarded by Him as nothing, as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, nothing is pretty small, right? But from God's perspective, it's less than nothing. It's pretty hard to get deeper or smaller. And Isaiah is just trying to make this point about the vast difference between God and all the nations of the earth. Right? You, you, you think about Israel and you think about Syria at time. You think about the Medes and the Persians and the Romans and the mighty United States. From God's perspective, less than nothing. Such is the gap between deity and humanity. Any interaction that the Lord has with us is stooping. Psalm 113, Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles Himself to behold things in heaven and on earth, even to look the things in heaven and on earth is a humbling process for God because He's so great and so mighty. But such was the humility of Jesus, His incarnation, that He went from the highest glory to the lowest humanity. John Flavel, a Puritan, says it this way, for an angel to be turned out of heaven to be converted into a silly fly or worm had been no such great abasement, for they were but creatures before, and so they would abide still, though in an inferior order or species of creatures. The distance between the highest and lowest creatures is but a finite distance. The angel and the worm dwell not so far apart. 
But for the infinitely glorious Creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. The distance between God and the highest order of creatures is, as he says, an infinite distance. When the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sought to describe this distance, he just said Jesus emptied himself. How else can you travel across that great gap? Compared to his glorious state, the human state is, as it were, empty. Nothing. And thus his humility is great. Well, well, how do you become empty? By taking the form of man, the limitations of humanity. And now let, let's, come back, let's come back now to verse 5. Let's just apply this, okay? Have this added in yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. He went down the lowest of low. And so I, I ask you, is that your attitude? Jesus took a giant step from God to man. He took the giant step from from God to servant man. Are you willing to take the same step? Are you willing to display humility in your life? Jesus set the bar for humility. As one who dwelt among us, no, as, as one who dwelt among us as a lowly servant, He set the bar for us. Are you willing to do the same? If God came to be a servant, and one of the things humility requires of you is to be a servant of others. Are you willing? Let's go beyond the attitude. Let's go to the action. How, how have you humbled yourself recently? How have you willingly placed yourself under others? I mean, that's verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of not mind, regard one another more importantly yourselves. Do not look after your own personal interests, but also those of Christ Jesus. And I say it's a hard road. Confession time here. A few weeks ago, I preached verses 1 through 4. Unity through humility. And uh, I came home exhausted. I was wiped out. And I remember shortly after a meal, taking my plates to the kitchen, and I, I told Yvonne, I said, um, boy, Yvonne, I sure am looking forward to my nap. And then she gently reminded me of what her afternoon looked like. We are having a small group at, at our home last Sunday, two Sundays ago, and so she said, well, I just need to clean the kitchen. I need to prepare the house for a small group that night. I need to... Pick up the mess that's around here and you vacuum, rearrange some of the furniture, set out the eating utensils, cooking a, bit, cooking a bit of food. Enjoy your nap, Steve. She didn't say that last part, but she implied that last part. And I thought about what I just preached. And there are times when you don't want to be a preacher, right? Times you don't want to be a pastor, and that was one of them. And I thought about what does it mean to set my interests above others? And it meant that I'd push through, no nap. And so I helped Yvonne and kids prepare for a small group last Sunday. And it, it, it's not easy. I'm not, I'm not lifting myself up. I'm, I'm even saying that wasn't my first thought in mind. And the only reason I did is because I had a guilty conscience. And if that's what I preached, I better at least seek to try to live something like that. But that's what a little bit of what humility might be like. The next day found me grumpy. I was irritable towards Yvonne, impatient with my son. And I remember Yvonne just said something. I think you're, I think you're being pretty impatient with Azar. And um, I didn't like her pointing out my sin. And, uh, you know, kind of like 
who is she to point out my sin? And I'm like, you know what? I'm a proud guy. So I'm not, I'm not humble. If I were humble, I'd say, yes, show me my sin, Avon. Because I will gladly confess my sin. Not just that I'm a sinner, but let me tell you of the ways that I have sinned and done wrong. That's what it means to be humble. To, to point out exact ways in which you failed to set others above yourself. And it's hard. We are all proud of heart. That's why we need the Lord's strength to be humble. Andrew Murray said in his great book, Humility, the life of God which is in the incarnation, enter the human nature, is the root in which we are to stand and grow. It is the same Almighty power that worked in us and from then on the resurrection which works in us daily. Our one need is to study and know and trust that life has been revealed in Jesus as the life that is now ours. It waits for our consent to gain possession and mastery of our whole being. In other words, he's saying this. He says, when Jesus came from heaven to earth and when He humbled Himself, that's the same power that we have in Christ and we can depend upon Him and trust in Him. We just need to plead, God, give me the strength to walk in humility as You Yourself modeled an example. Isn't that the prayer that must flow out of verse 5? Have this attitude in yourselves also in Christ Jesus. What can we do but to say, God, give us the strength the strength in which Jesus humbled Himself. Give me that same strength so that I might be humble myself and willingly serve other people. Well, verse 6 speaks about our humble heart. Verse 7 speaks about a humble life. And verse 8 speaks about a humble death. In verse 8 we read this, "...being found in appearance as a man..." He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus came on the earth, He came to die without question. That was His overarching purpose in His life. Over and over again throughout His ministry, you can hear Him speak of His hour, His hour, His hour. At the wedding of Cana, Jesus said to His mother, My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. In Jerusalem, when Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, John tells us that no man laid hands on Him because His hour had not yet come. And when teaching in the temple and stirring the crowds, they said no one seized Him because His hour had not yet come. Like all of us, we are all invincible until the day God determines that we will pass away. Psalm 139, right? The days that were ordained for me God knew and had me in their hand before us, yet there was even one of them. And during the Passion Week, though, it changed because His hour came in the Passion Week. John 13:1. Before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that His hour had come when He would depart out of this world to be with the Father. In His high priestly prayer, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Thy Son. Right? What's the hour? The hour is the time of His death. That's all of eternity was focused upon the time when the, the Redeemer would come, when the, son, the, the seed of the woman, as we sang about today, hark how all the welkin ring, the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent. He came for the hour of death, and the obedience of Jesus brought him to that place. John 12, probably in Garden of Gethsemane, he says, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. For this purpose I came to this hour of death. 
In fact, that's the point of verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You know, the obedient life, by the way, I just got to throw this in here. The obedient life is a humble life. When people are obedient to the Lord, they usually don't attract much attention to themselves. I mean, think about Hollywood. Who gets the attention in Hollywood? But those who push the boundaries. Those who say the outlandish things and wear the most exotic clothes. It's those who are risque who get the attention. And what about the news? Who gets the attention? It's those who do the awful things, right? The murderers and the thieves and the robbers. Those who protest. Those who throw stones. Those are the ones who get the attention. Who is it in a classroom with children who gets all the attention? It's the disobedient kids. But the life of obedience is a life of humility that brings no attention to oneself. Unassuming obedience. That's what Jesus did. Unassuming obedience. Where did it bring Him? It brought Him to the point of death. And that was the whole purpose of the Incarnation anyway. And here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul points out the kind of death that Jesus would die. It wasn't a normal death. Jesus didn't die of old age. He didn't die quickly. He died slowly, painfully, shamefully. He died the death of a cross. In fact, that's what verse 8 literally says. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Now we today wear crosses on our necks. Some of you may have crosses on your rings, your wedding bands. We have a cross in church. Just think about the cross. And for us, it becomes like this, oh, delightful thing. But... Think back what the cross was like in the Roman world. Death by crucifixion was so horrible that it shouldn't even be mentioned in conversation. shouldn't even be talked about. It's what Cicero said. A hundred years before Jesus died, here's what Cicero, a Jewish Roman historian said, let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts his eyes, and his ears. In other words, it is so awful. First of all, Roman citizens are exempt because there's no way a Roman citizen should ever be tolerated to endure that. But it's so awful, we ought not to talk about it. Think about our... We talk about a lot of things in our society that are pretty awful. I, I think maybe abortion is what I'm, I'm comparing this to. Abortion, we, we talk about it, we think about the awful reality of that. And yet, the cross was so much more awful than abortion that it said, don't even think about it. Don't even let it enter your head. It's such a heinous, hideous thing. They would never conceive of having a cross in a church. Crucifixion was a death of a slave, is what it was. And to the Jewish world, death by crucifixion was shameful, filled with shame. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived after the life of Christ but knew many of the events surrounding the life of Christ, called the cross the most pitiable, pitiable of deaths. Deuteronomy 21-23 says, He who is hanged on a tree is accursed by God. Hebrews 12-2, we read of how Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. It wasn't the pain of the cross. It was the shame of the cross. It was the wrath of God come upon Him that He feared, that He hated. But what a fitting death for the Son of God. Not only did Jesus humble Himself to look to earth, not only did Jesus humble Himself to come to earth, not only did Jesus humble Himself to come to earth as a man, not only did Jesus humble Himself to come to earth to die, 
But Jesus humbled Himself to die the most horrible of deaths, death on a cross. And that's the whole reason why He came. To die to redeem us. Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under a law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And how did He redeem us? Through His death. Through becoming our ultimate sacrifice for us. And I just say we ought to rejoice in our Savior who came for us. So we celebrate this Christmas season as the joy of God, God coming to earth to save us from our sins. And according to the, the passage though, verse 5 ought to be our attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves. It's also in Christ Jesus who became a man, humbled himself in obedient life, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, he went... He went the lowest of the low of the low. So let's take the incarnation. It's not just he became a man. He became a man who was despised and hated, rejected, and dying on the cross. The cross should humble us. And so this Christmas season, it's filled with all types of emotions, happiness and giving and busyness and joy. Let us also be humbled this Christmas season. To think of the Lord of the universe coming to die gives us no excuse but to die for others. I think about some applications in Scripture are right along this line. Husbands, right? How are you called to love your wives? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It says this, husbands, your love for your wives ought to look like Christ's love for the church. Humbling to the point of death, utter self-sacrifice. Whatever pains you endure are less than Jesus paid on the cross. And several times in Scripture, the application comes. Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's verse 4. right? Put your interest, verse 3, on the, of Christ Jesus. Also look after the interests of others. That's 2 Timothy, right? Verse 2, verse, I'm sorry, Philippians 2.21. Not seeking after your own interests, but those of, of Christ Jesus. Look after Jesus' interests. Don't look after your own. Love, serve, help. Well, I've had three points, right? A humble heart, a humble life, a humble death under the category of the humiliation. And I thought I'd end with a poem from the Gospel Primer. This book is written in several sections. It's, um, the back, um, Milton Vincent, who I went to seminary with, don't know him really well, but he was a classmate of mine. He grew up fundamentalist Baptist and was tired of all the legalism and just said, what? How, how, how can I? I got to get off this treadmill. And God showed to him the glorious grace of Christ. He's got 31 maybe meditations about that. He's got uh, just a, an explanation of the gospel and he finishes with an extended poem. And so I've had three points. I'm going to finish my poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I encourage you to. I'm going to read just one Stanza, that Jesus was willing his life to lay down, be scourged and insulted, and wear thorny crown. For one such as I, who had spited God so, amazes and blesses and makes me to know 
that greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. It's the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, this day that you would humble us. I find it interesting, O Lord, that when Paul wanted to cultivate an attitude of humility in the body of those in Philippi, he went to this deep theology of the hypostatic union of Jesus becoming a man. And Lord, somehow that works as we think about what Christ Jesus did. God, the only response can be, well, how can I do otherwise? And so, Father, I pray that You would humble us, that You would create in us a, a humble people. God, even for the purpose, as Paul said here in Philippians 2, to be of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. God, that we as a church family would be committed to our, our motto is to enjoy God's grace and extend God's glory. Oh, God, help us to enjoy Your grace. It's given to us in Jesus. We might extend Your glory with the Gospel. God, to our own homes, to this neighborhood, to Rockford, to Illinois and beyond, clear out to India and Nepal, where we've been. God, help us, O oh Lord, to, um, to seek a unity here that we can go forward together as a body of Christ. And take these words and apply them to all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.